Last week, we explored God's provision for an undone life. Some of the things that he is inviting us to desire. Well, today we're going to to look at these verses in Isaiah 55 some more and explore the practice of, of how do we go about having a life that is undone by God's presence, by an encounter with a God who is absolutely real and who wants to fill you with his presence, with his goodness, so that his glory may be seen in and through your life. Well, we're going to go back and look at the first few verses of Isaiah 55, which we looked at last week, and um, look at some truths and then build on that and head into this passage that Ben read for us. And I pray that the Lord will speak, that he will, he will honor his promise, that his word will produce fruit, will change lives, not because of the messenger, but because of the message that it points to to Jesus Christ, the one who can fill us. So in Isaiah 55, verse 1, we have this practice of an undone life, and he starts with this simple invitation of come. That we're to come to him with a thirst. And as we go on, it talks not only about the things that we drink, but the the things that we would eat, and it reveals a truth that is universal. That every one of us has a hungry heart. Now, if you're like me, if you came from my generation, which there's very few of you that are that old, but for, for some of the others, you have, you have listened and heard these things. When you hear hungry heart, what comes to mind? The song by Bruce Springsteen. Sometimes we find truth in unusual places. The lyric of that song tells a truth, although it's a partial truth. And and now, so to go ahead and just corrupt all the rest of you, we're going to play a little bit of a clip of Hungry Heart by Bruce Springsteen, and then I am going to commit the unpardonable sin of rock and roll, and I'm going to rewrite the song. Okay, so just forgive me, but deal with it. So let's see if we can hear Hungry Heart. Hit enter and it may play. Unfortunately, there's a problem that comes with that. You're going to be singing that stupid song all day long. It's going to get stuck. And unfortunately, in his case, when you listen to the lyrics, you know, he's having an affair. 
he's, his heart is wondering, even though he's got a wife and a child, it's not satisfying the hunger within him. Now, Bruce Springsteen, this isn't an original thought, and it's actually not an original lyric. He borrowed this phrase from a poem by Lord Alfred Tennyson. I want to read this to you for just a moment. I cannot rest from travel. I will drink. Life to the lees. All times I have enjoyed greatly, have suffered greatly, both with those that love me and alone. On shore and when through scudding drifts, the rainy Hyades vex the dim seas. I am become a name for always roaming with a hungry heart. It's a universal truth that all of us have an emptiness that needs to be filled. But we cannot fill it with the things of this world. And so with that in mind, I want to read the first few verses again of Isaiah 55. And then we're going to try the song a little bit differently. And I'm going to invite you to sing the chorus because my hope is, is that's what you will take with you and will be left imprinted on your mind rather than I've got a wife and kid in Baltimore, Jack. As good of a lyric as that is, it's not quite what we want to communicate. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, here that your soul may live. Our God desires for us to find satisfaction, to find meaning and purpose and wholeness. And so, whereas I'm not very much of a singer and certainly not much of a musician, um, that... I wanted to find a way to express the truth that reflects the greatness of our God and expresses the way I've experienced him fill my own heart and life. So we're going to try this. We have a business meeting afterwards, right? Are you voting on me today? (laughs) Just checking. (laughs) All right, let's try this. Thank you. 
Let's go on. <laughs> Father, we do thank you that even though there's a, there's a hole within us, you have given everything that we need to be filled. And Lord, you simply invite us to come to you hungry, to come desiring that which really will make a difference in our life. Lord, in each and every person here in this room, Chances are there is an ache in their soul right now. There's something that has been a disappointment, an emptiness. Lord, I ask that you would give the courage and the freedom today for them to place all that they are and all that they hope for in your hands. To seek you because right now, Lord, you are inviting us to come to you and be filled. So, Lord, we come and we bow before you as hungry souls. Fill us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. God invites us to come hungry, but he also invites us, secondly, to come humbly. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. The problem oftentimes that we face is that we try to come to God with our resources, with our own goodness. And we want God to bless our plans, our ideas for our life. And guess what? Your resources and my resources are not good enough. If they were, we wouldn't need God. But we find out very, very quickly that they not only fall short, They don't even begin to satisfy. So here there are two conditions listed. One, to be thirsty and hungry, and to secondly, not bring our own resources. And then third, if we are to be undone, we have to desire what is healthy. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. C.S. Lewis wisely observed that the problem that you and I have is not that we desire too much. It is that we desire too little. And we settle for that which will not fill us. God is wanting to give us all of himself to know him intimately. But the challenge is, Do we desire Him that much? Not just His blessings, not just His gifts. 
In two weeks, we're going to begin a, a series on prayer, and, and I'm actually going to do a transition message on, out of Isaiah chapter 64, which has an incredible prayer. And I want to read this to you because this ultimately points us to both the problem in our heart and the answer that God will provide. Isaiah chapter 64 has an amazing prayer that I want to urge us as a people to begin praying. This is something I've, um, I've chosen. Whenever I get on an escalator and I'm going down, I pray this prayer. It's just a reminder. And so whenever I go to the metro, I pray this prayer as I'm headed down the escalator, sometimes down the steps as well. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. Isn't that the prayer that we want to pray? I mean, we think about the circumstances in our world today and we we think how God is mocked in so many ways. We want God to show up and say, there he is. And that's what we need. We don't need a change in political leaders. We don't need changes in laws. We need God to step in and do something that is only explainable by his presence. But the problem is, We as his church must desire that first and foremost. That is when revival and transformation happens. We can spend our time being frustrated over the circumstances around us and the deterioration of our culture. And yet the answer is for us to desire him and to pray these kind of prayers. Because then we will be changed And the Holy Spirit will have free reign in your life and my life and in the lives of believers in church after church after church. And God's glory will be revealed. He says, when you did awesome things that we did not look for. I love that. Because I'm always praying for God to do the thing I want. I want to start praying, God, would you do what you want even though I don't expect it? Even though I wouldn't know to ask for it, I want you to do something I'm not even looking for, we're not even looking for. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. That's the key right there. Karen read this in her prayer from Isaiah 40. Waiting for the Lord. Now here's the challenge. There are two kinds of waitings that you and I experience. I experienced one of those waitings this week during the construction uh, in the middle of Prague where I'm, I'm in my car and, you know, you're waiting at the light through about eight lights And after a while, you start going, can we just go already? Okay. Now, sometimes when we're we're looking for an answer from God, that's how we feel. It's like, God, I've been praying for this over and over and over again. Can we just get on with it already? That's not the kind of waiting that God is inviting us to. Now, I want you to picture a different kind of waiting. I want you to picture yourself at the airport. 
waiting for your loved one to come. I'm going to help us out here because I'm going to um, picture Vartan, okay, at the airport waiting for Lucy, okay? He's not going to be frustrated even if it takes her a long time. Every moment he's getting more excited, more anticipation, more desire, because the reward is her presence. That's the kind of waiting God is inviting us to, is waiting for him himself, not just the answer to our problem. And when our desire becomes, God, I want you more than I want your answers, then the waiting takes on a whole different dynamic. Because when he comes, when he rends the heavens and comes down, it will fill our hearts to overflowing. So he asks us to examine our priorities, to hunger for that which is good, that which lasts. And then he gives us a promise. This is what's so cool in here, is if if this is what we desire, we get this promise. Isaiah 55, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Now the Bible tells us that David is a man after God's own heart. A man that God loved immeasurably. But what is this promise? This promise is if you come to God with that kind of hunger, the hunger that David came to him with, God will love you with the same capacity, the same enormity as his love for David. Isn't that cool? And here's what he promises. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you like I made with David. Now, we looked at this for just a moment last week, but there's a difference between a contract and a covenant. We do not have a contract-making God, which is a good thing because you and I will break it every single time. A contract requires both parties to be faithful. But we have a covenant-making God who he is faithful on his own. And when he makes a promise, he will not withdraw it. So he has given you and I this promise that if you really want to be filled, if you really want to know him, come to him with this kind of hunger and he will fill you. He will make you a part of his story, of of history. He will make you as important in history as David because of what he is doing in and through your life. Your story, your life matters to God. He cares about you. Never for one second think of yourself as ordinary because God made you in his image and he has, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, he has placed his Holy Spirit inside of you. You are something that God cares immensely about. And he desires for you to know him with the same kind of fullness that is poured out in the Psalms by the pen of David. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God wants you to know him that intimately? If not, would you confess that that is unbelief on your own part and on my part? 
and say, Lord, I want to stop right there. And I confess that's unbelief because I keep thinking myself as a second class child. That somehow I'm not as important. You're not as interested in me. And the reason I do is because I see how many times I've failed. I got news for you. David failed miserably. The scripture records that his sins are terrible. But what distinguished him is he continued to come back to God's invitation and repented and asked for restoration. He returned to God. And that's what he's inviting us to do. So we're to seek God's heart in the same way that David did. If you seek God's heart as David did, he promises to write us into his story, to make us a part of his covenant. Here's what he says he'll do through you and I. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, You shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now God is writing this to his people and we discover that he has has written this through the prophet Isaiah speaking about, um, in Isaiah basically 40 through 66, It is speaking about a time under which Israel is going to experience captivity by Babylon. But he's saying that an answer is coming. You're going to go into judgment. You're going to go into incredibly difficult circumstances um, for 70 years. It's going to be horrible. And throughout Isaiah, he describes some of the things that that they're going to experience. But he's saying, when you return with a hunger for me... It's a hunger like David's. I'm going to send you a rescue from, a, from the last place you would ever expect it. And he actually tells them by name where that help's going to come from. If you have doubt about whether or not the Bible is God's word and whether or not it's true, then I want to show you a prophecy that was fulfilled by name, written in the scriptures 150 years before it came to pass, that proves God is God. Turn back to Isaiah 45. And we're going to see what he's already revealed. He's commenting on this when he says this nation that you do not know is going to come and is going to be the one that I use to rescue you. Um, He then spells that out just a few chapters earlier. Because what we need to understand is that God is in control. He is sovereign, and even though circumstances may look terrible, it may look like our world is falling apart at the seams, it does not limit God. I promise you, for Israel, during the Babylonian captivity, when they were slaves, everything looked incredibly bleak. They had lost their place of worship, they had lost their religious freedoms, they had lost their ability to to be a nation, to be a people. And they were slaves. But God was not limited. Look what he says in Isaiah 45 verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, 
whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that the gates may not be closed. Verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Cyrus was the leader of the Medes and the Persians. He did not know God. He was not a follower of of Yahweh. And yet, 150 years before this was going to come about, God wrote it into his scripture and named him by name. Now, to, to give you an idea of what this would be like, is let's, let's say, pick any circumstance that you want to imagine in your mind, and let's say that God wrote down and said, the answer to that is Merkel. Okay? I just picked somebody that actually I know almost nothing about. I apologize to all of you from Germany. I know almost nothing about Angela Merkel, other than she's the leader of Germany. Yeah. Let's say he wrote that. I didn't want to do anything from America because... We'll just leave that alone. Yeah. Let's go with Angela. Okay? And, and then he wrote that down and said, I'm going to use Merkel to do something amazing that's going to bring back worship to my name. He'd be going, wow, that, that's pretty cool. This is exactly what God did. He wrote down the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus was going to be, was going to be raised up Exactly 70 years after Israel had been led into captivity in Babylon. And this king of Persia was the one God was going to use to bring his people back and to restore Jerusalem. It's, it's, now, here's what's interesting. Cyrus did not know God, but God knew him. You see... A person can be agnostic towards God, but God is never agnostic towards us. He knows you and he will work through your life whether you acknowledge him or not. In fact, these verses say that God anointed Cyrus. God will work his purposes no matter who we are. But it makes a radical difference when we join with him in what he is doing. God will open up a way for his purposes. He said in verse, verse 2, I will go before you and level exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. In other words, the barriers that you see where it's like no way, there's no way that we'll ever get out of this circumstance. That's how Israel would have felt. God's promise is I'm going to break down those doors. Because I am a God who opens doors that no man can shut. That's the kind of God that we serve. You may be facing an obstacle that seems immovable. Trust God. If it is his will for you, he will open up a way. He alone can open the doors, no matter what they look like, if we trust him and seek him. God also will provide the necessary resources to accomplish his purpose. Verse 3 says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in the secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. 
And that's exactly what God did. In fact, we're not going to take the time to read it, but if you write down Ezra chapter 1, let me read just the first couple of verses. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, because Jeremiah also wrote about this, might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. He made a decree. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. He fulfilled it to the letter because our God is a God who will accomplish his purpose and a God who will keep his promises. And it's not just that which happened in the past. He is a God who keeps his promises now. So God is in control, even though he has given us a freedom of will, that freedom does not limit his ability in any way, shape, or form. God is both sovereign and loving. His love, however, is not a passive love. It is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. Because he wants to work in you and in me to make us reflect the image of his son, Jesus Christ, to be conformed to his image. So then, if we go back to Isaiah 55, we're told that God's going to work in a way, he's in control, he understands the circumstances, and he can bring resources that you never expected from a, a totally different place and bring them to bear when we seek him and desire him with a whole heart. And then he tells us to come in a hurry. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. What a promise. God made it incredibly simple for you and I. He doesn't say you have to measure up. He says you have to turn around. Come back to me. You don't have to be good enough because none of us are. What you need to do is simply acknowledge right now, God, I need you. For some of you in this room, there's an uncertainty. You know some things about God. You have a perception of God, but you do not know him personally. You've never trusted him as your savior and your Lord. And what he's saying is come to me right now. Today is the day of your salvation, the scripture reveals. Understand, we may not have next Friday. Circumstances could change. Our health could deteriorate. Our mind could go. The prompting of God's spirit upon you right now, whatever he is speaking to your heart, whether it's coming to him for salvation or whether it's turning away from something that you know is in disobedience to him, He may not strive with us forever. That's what the scripture reveals. So he says right now, don't waste this moment because the hunger that you want to be fulfilled, that you're pursuing in this other way, I want to fill it if you'll trust me.
and come to me right now. There's something interesting about pardon, about forgiveness. Many years ago, there was a a famous Supreme Court case in the United States. Two men named Porter and Wilson were sentenced to death for robbing the U.S. Postal Service. Porter was hanged in July, but shortly after his hanging, the president pardoned Wilson. But there was a problem. Wilson said, I don't want forgiveness. I don't, I don't want to be pardoned. Now, what do you do? Legally, the highest authority of the land had given forgiveness, had given a pardon for the crime that he had committed. And it caused an incredible stir that went to the Supreme Court because they had to discover what's right. Does this pardon overrule the wishes of the one who's being offered forgiveness? And they discovered that as they studied the law, which ultimately is based upon the law of God and of God's word, they wrote this. Pardon is an act of grace which exempts the individual on whom it is bestowed from the punishment of law. A pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential. Delivery is not complete without acceptance. It then may be rejected by the person to whom it is offered. If the pardon is rejected, we have found no power in the court to force it upon him. You and I must respond to God's offer of forgiveness. He will not force it upon you. But if we do not respond, if we do not receive it, the punishment, the wages of sin is death, will carry. He's saying, come to me right now while he may be found. I pray that God will speak to our hearts about areas in my life, in your life, where he is calling us to his pardon right now. And he says, it's not just the things that we do, it's the thoughts. We're to turn our thoughts, our way of thinking. It said in verse 7, the unrighteous man, um, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. That's where it begins. You and I need a transformation in the way that we think. And we're going to go on and discover that what he says is, my ways are not your ways. That's why we need to think things not based upon us, but based upon God and the reality of who he is. We are to come to a higher understanding of God. Verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now understand the context here is in the setting of forgiveness and of God giving out grace and pardon. That is his ultimate plan and agenda, is to 
rescue as many people who, as those who are willing, as many people as possible to bring them to a salvation relationship with Jesus Christ. That is his priority. If you were to view your life through that window, how would it be different? Would you see the circumstances that you enter into through a totally different viewpoint? Would it change how you view suffering? If suffering would somehow work for the good of someone I love or even someone I don't know, but as a result, they are drawn to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, would it be worth it? Hard question, isn't it? I want it to be worth it. But the way it begins is recognizing that my thinking isn't God's thinking. And to desire Him more than my plan for my life. To desire His honor and His ultimate plan. I was reading this week biography of Helen Rosevere. She was a British medical missionary to the Congo. She had um, gone there in the, in the late 1950s. She served there for 20 years. And in the middle of that time was the Mau Mau Revolution. And she was captured by the revolutionaries. And she was raped repeatedly. She was beaten. She was abused. All the while, she was trying to still be a doctor. To serve even her captors. And those 19 that were captured with her. In the midst of that setting, Helen wrote a statement that each of us should consider. She wrote a question that God was asking her. Can you thank me for trusting you with this experience even if I never tell you why? Can you thank God for trusting you with the hardest part of your life? She was able to come to the point where even though her circumstances are beyond anything I can imagine, she was willing to say, I will trust my God. And she went back. Even after she was released and she went home to England and recovered. A few months later, she turned around and went right back. And her life became a testimony of how God can take the most terrible of circumstances and use it for His honor and to draw other people to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You see, that reality, his thoughts, his plan, his purpose leads us to the promise of a harvest. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and did not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty 
but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, here's the really cool thing about that promise. That promise is a promise that, yes, goes with the telling of God's word, with the proclaiming of God's word, but it also goes to everyone who is invited and responds to the invitation and says, Lord, I'm coming to you. I want you to fill me. I want to be about your agenda and your purpose. He says, then you have this assurance, my word, my promises will be brought to fulfillment in and through you. You will bring forth a harvest. You will bear fruit. Sounds a lot like Jesus. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you shall ask what you want and it shall be done unto you and your life will bring forth fruit. Do you see what he's offering? You see, we want satisfaction. We want significance. We want purpose. And he says, yes, I will give you all of that if you want me more than anything else. Because I'm the only thing, the only one that can fill and satisfy. And he ends with a promise. The promises of an undone life. And I love the way Ben read this. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. The scripture tells us that the earth groans waiting for the adoption, the redemption of you and I, of believers all across the face of the earth. Creation is rejoicing over what God is doing in and through his people. So this isn't about being miserable in any way, shape, or form. It's about experience the deepest joy that overflows out of you and me and affects all of creation. That's his promise. When he becomes that which we desire most, we will see the awe of who he is. He will rend the heavens and come down. And things that we don't even look for, he will begin to do. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come forth the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. That's his promise. That's why he invites us to let our life be undone by him. I put in your bulletins, um, instead of sermon notes, just some exercises to, to take with you this week to begin praying over this passage and other passages in the Psalms, to ask that the Lord will truly bring this to a reality in us individually. And would you pray for us as a church that our desire for God would be so passionate that God would rend the heavens and come down and bring revival in our lives, in our family, in our church, in this city, in this nation, in Europe, And that we would be a people that God can use to show the greatness of who he is. We're going to close with a song of confidence. But if there's a need in your life, if you have not yet trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, I would would be honored to speak with you. 
And so I'll be down here on the front row. And if, if, if that's the need in your heart and life, I just want to encourage you as you're singing, don't pay any attention to anybody else here and just come and let's talk about it. Let's pray together. You can call upon the name of the Lord right now. Or maybe there's another need in your, in your heart and your life and you just need someone to pray with you. If you don't want to pray with me, you can pray with Vimbi or with Becky or with Keith um, or, or pick someone else there. We want to be here for you because we believe God wants to work in your heart and your life. We believe God will honor his promises and meet you at your point of need. So Heavenly Father, you are a good, amazing God. In fact, this I know, you are a great God. A God that has proven his love by dying for us and rising again. Lord, would you change us this day? Stir our hearts. Let the truth of your word penetrate deeply and transform us that we may know you and Lord, even just desire you. For I confess the complacency of my own heart, the weakness of my own desire. I know you are what I want. So help me to desire you more. Speak to the hearts of each and every person here today. Have your way among us, we ask. Because we are coming to you with hungry hearts. In Jesus' name.